Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're going to be discussing one of the most prolific American songwriters in history. Can you figure out who it is? Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right, guys, we're going to be talking about a very important American songwriter. We gave you that short intro theme song, Jeopardy style, to try and figure out who we are talking about. Hopefully you have a guess. The answer is Irving Berlin. Yay. Dan's best buddy. Yes, we were so close, although we never met, that he allowed me to call him Izzy like he did all of his other friends. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But anyway, he was born on May 11th, 1888, so this marks the 130th birthday of his big old day. So we're very happy to have a opportunity here at the Music History Project to celebrate his life and his contributions to the American music art form. Yeah, so with that said, we're going to be hearing from a couple different people that Dan actually got to meet and become best friends with. <laughs> um, and we're really excited today because we also have a guest with us. Our, I think this is our second ever guest. Yes, yeah, so exciting. Zach won't get his claim to fame as being our only guest anymore because <laughs> now we have another one. Um, Mike, do you want to introduce him? Yeah, so joining us is the intern for NAM, Austin. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. So this is a first for us and hopefully a reoccurring thing that we're going to do here on the Music History Project podcast, Um, just bringing the NAM interns on so that they can experience whatever this is that we do on this (laughs) podcast. Yeah, yeah, all you young college students out there who are just like waiting every two weeks for this podcast to come out, you're sitting on the edge of your seat and you're thinking about what I want to do with the rest of my life, just realize you could take an internship and for a very short period of time be with us making this podcast. It's been a blast so far. Just got <laughs> started. <Okay>, good. <laughs> I wasn't really sure how that was going. <laughs> and he's like, hey, I don't want to be here. <laughs> so uh, we have quite a few people we get to hear from today, but I think the coolest little treat is that we're going to get to hear uh, from Dan's radio days. <laughs> so imagine it. Back in time. I don't know what year it was. 1986. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, the trick. <laughs> <laughs> Crickets, because none of us know what that was like no. in 1986. <laughs> none of us. Actually, the treat for me, uh, on looking at the list of the uh, amazing people that we have lined up to talk about Irving today, is uh, two of his three daughters, which I was really delighted to interview several years ago. And I believe this is outside of their web clip, the first time that we're exposing part of their interview. So I'm really excited about that. 
Yeah, so just a reminder that you can check out all this content, the, the web clip version at least, on the website, uh, library. And we have a short segment of a full-length interview that is published there, but we also have all this content that is not necessarily available to the public, but you get a little test of it here when you listen to the podcast. So you're getting rare, unheard-of footage, which is really neat, so... So why did we pick Irving Berlin besides the fact that I've interviewed a lot of people surrounding his career? I think it's because if we wanted to, to, to define what American popular music was at the turn of the last century, there really is only one person. Uh, Irving Berlin really redefined what popular music was at the time. And because of his insistence and in, uh, business attitude, he created a thing called ASCAP, which has helped with royalties ever since. He's helped with organizations that have endured in, as far as music making. But even outside of music making, he has supported uh, groups like the Boy and Girl Scouts, uh, orphanages all around the world. Uh, the guy has been really deep in giving back to uh, to the American public uh, as well as uh, all around the world. So his impact, even outside of music, has been vast. But as you will hear in this podcast from a multitude of different people, his um, contributions to music are completely um, um, without without anybody else. I, I, I don't know how to say it any more succinctly. There are no competitors when it comes to Irving Berlin as far as defining what American popular music was. Yeah, and I think uh, you've probably all heard Irving Berlin stuff, and we can all take a turn naming one of his songs. I'll go first, White Christmas. I just got to get that uh, out there so I don't sound dumb when I can't mine. think of another one. <laughs> um, I can say God Bless America. Oh. oh. So you just got to be quick. You got it, yeah. You got putting on the Ritz. Very good. Oh, that's how. <laughs> I don't want to take any way of the easy ones. Should I do a hard <laughs> one so you guys can do another easy one? Are we doing another round? Uh, I won't be able to. I will. <laughs> I'm going to take a pass I on will, this next round. Yeah, <laughs> grateful, gracefully bow out of round two. But uh. he also wrote uh, Easter Parade, No Business Like Show Business, Blue Skies, Having a Heat Wave. These are just some of the huge songs that he wrote. He also wrote all the words and music to a multitude of large musical plays and um, Broadway musicals like Annie Get Your Gun and all the songs for that, um, Miss Liberty, Mr. President, uh, all kinds of stuff. The guy was very deep in all of that. Plus, he went into the movies in the 1930s and put a lot of music behind two very favorite dancers of his, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, and wrote most of the music for, I think, 11 of their movies. So um, there's just about, um, it's easier to list the songs during that period that he didn't write, the dump dump. But he did have, <laughs> uh, I think, over a thousand songs published before he passed away. Um, and then there was another, I think, 1,500 songs, either partially written or completely written, that he didn't publish uh, that have come out slowly over time, uh, thanks to his daughters. So a very deep well. I like to say, um, I mentioned this to you guys earlier, uh, one of my favorite things to say about Irving is that there is really no accountability for where he got his genius. And that's something that we're going to hear in our first interview uh, clip that we're going to play. And so here's a kid who came from Russia and wrote God Bless America and the Cantor's son who wrote White Christmas and the Jewish kid who wrote Easter Parade. You know, he he, he uh, 
took down all definitions of what he should know and what he should write about and wrote about the opposite. And because of that, as Jerome Kern, another great American songwriter, once said, Irving was blessed with every man's ear and heart. He was relatable. You could listen to these songs and you could say, oh my gosh, I wish I had said that. That's some feeling that I have, like all alone by the telephone. You know, in those few words, exactly what the guy is talking about because you've been there. You felt those same feelings of sorrow or what'll I do when somebody goes away and you miss them. Um, in those few words, you can really relate to what that is. And so when he celebrated, we celebrated. His, he wrote, blue skies smiling at me, nothing but blue skies do I see when his daughter was born. And so those of us who have kids can relate to that. Yeah, you know, that feeling of bringing a kid into the world is blue skies. It's not always blue skies, but in that moment, um, there are some great happy feelings that you never experienced before. So that's what I mean about connecting with the American public. And as and in doing so, he created the forum. Everybody followed him and said, wow, I wish I could do that. And Jerome Kern and Cole Porter, the Gershwins, many other people followed suit because they said, wow, if he can do it, so can I. And many, many of them, except for the exception of Cole Porter, found that they couldn't do it on their own. So there were a lot of songwriting teams that one would do lyrics, the other would do the music. Irving did both his entire career. Yeah, I mean, and that totally you jumped ahead of where my next thought was, where I was going to pose the question that do you think modern songwriting essentially is modeled after the ideas and thoughts and abilities of Berlin, that if you're going to write a hit song today or you're going to have a hit career in songwriting, not just one song, but a multitude of them, are you essentially trying to emulate Irving Berlin in his style? I think the trick there is, and it, of course, is not completely unique to Irving, but for the American songwriting, um, the the genres as far as defined what American pop music is, it really helps to connect to the audience. Right. And Irving did that in a way that I really don't think a whole lot of people did before as far as pop music goes. Uh, classical music, of course, but pop music especially the turn of the last century. His first song was written in 1906. He really helped define that. And I think that when we look at popular songs now, I mean, listen to the lyrics of the songs that you like. Mm -hmm. Most of them are things that you can relate to. You like it for a reason. Oh, wow, I wish I had written that, like I said earlier. Or that reminds me of something. If you can do that as a songwriter, I think you're sort of taking a cue from Irving because he really helped define that connection. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was just thinking all the songs that I consider, you know, the themes to my life or something prolific like that are songs that n resonate a certain memory, a time in my life. They tell a story that I identify with or am passionate about. And that's because they connect to me and my life is why I like them, not because they have a really catchy drum beat or something like mm -hmm. that. You know? No, that's exactly right. So let's talk about the first guy we're going to uh, listen to a interview clip from. This goes back to uh, my radio days, uh, 1994, so not the oldest one we're going to play today. <laughs> don't tell me, Mike. It's my birth year. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting closer. <laughs> I said, don't tell me, Mike. Um, so this is Artie Shaw. For those of you who don't know, they're probably top 
10 band leaders during the big band era, he would definitely be on the top 10 with uh, Glenn Miller and Duke Ellington and Tommy Dorsey. This guy had a lot of uh, great success as a recording artist, as well as in the movies. Uh, he married well. He married a couple of very famous actresses and, and well-known people. And he was a curmudgeon through and through. His name was Artie Shaw, and he played the clarinet very, very well. Uh, had a lot of big hits. And when I caught up to him in 1994, uh, it was getting ready for a, uh, a birthday radio show for Irving. And so I asked him, I said, uh, Mr. Shaw, what do you think of uh, Irving Berlin? And here's his answer. Well, he was a genius. He was a bloody genius. He, he did things there was no accounting for in his background or in his environment. He was a totally original voice. He came along and did stuff and developed in a way that, uh, I don't use that word lightly. Genius is a very, very big concept. And I can define it for you very simply by saying he produced material for which you cannot account. You can't account for where it came from. The man never studied. He never knew anything. Yet he became a master of a song form that was goes all the way back to Schubert. I mean, he was right, he was a giant. He's alone like, uh, you know, Mount, like Mount Everest. He's, he's one of the greats. I mean, I don't think you'd find, Jerome Kern, I was married to Jerry's daughter, you know. And I lived in the same house with Jerome Kern. Jern, Kern thought of machine. Everybody, Oscar Hammerstein said, he wrote five words that, are, that tell you everything that the whole song is gonna tell you, all alone by the telephone. He says, nobody's ever going to write a more succinct uh, description of a person betrayed, left alone, miserable, unhappy. You know, he said, nobody. The guy was a bloody genius. That's the word. You can kind of detect a little frustration in his voice, and I think it's because uh, Artie Shaw was also a songwriter and maybe didn't have as much success as Irving did. <laughs> I, I certainly picked up on that same sentiment uh, from the next guy we're going to hear a quick clip from. Uh, it's also very short, but it goes back to 1986. This is Raymond Scott. And you can hear he says something like, yeah, Irving had this ability to win all the time. And so as, as uh, fellow songwriters, I'm sure it was a little frustrating that uh, this guy could write anything and it would be a, uh, a big hit. Um, so uh, the quick story about... Um, Raymond Scott, for those of you who have followed our podcast, know that we talked about him when we were uh, discussing Boddicker and Bob Moog, right? He was a great influence in the, in the world of electronic instrumentation, early days of synthesizers, that sort of thing. He also had a very impressive career as a band leader back in the 30s on radio. Many of the songs that he wrote became themes for uh cartoon music. It, uh, I, I was trying to think Warner Brothers, people like that used his music as background. So Raymond Scott uh, became sort of a cult following. In fact, um, in September of, of 2018, there is going to be a Raymond Scott Festival in Los Angeles. So his legacy certainly continues. And as his wife, Mitzi, once told me, she believed this, this is his last interview. He had a stroke just a few months after this was taped and passed away several years after that, but not able to give another interview. So this is sort of poignant to me because I realize this is one of the last interviews, but I also got to talk to a guy I admired as a musician, songwriter, and band leader about my favorite songwriter. So let's play that. The show that I saw on KCET and PBS the other night, 
uh, really uh, held him in a greatest esteem, and he sure is worth all of that. Uh, he had this crazy ability to, like, to win all the time. Every time he wrote something, he won. He won a contest with, I don't know, with Bloomberg. It was just, what he turned out, it was quite remarkable. And he did it so consistently so many times. I met him once many years ago. I can't remember when. And uh, if you see him on television, like you might have if you had seen that show on KCET, uh, he was the same, and he's 1935, uh, or whenever I met him, 33, as, uh, as he was whenever that show was done, which was probably a few years ago. So once again, that was Raymond Scott uh, from back in Dan's radio days. Next, we're going to hear from Erwin Rabinowitz, who Dan had the pleasure of interviewing in 2003. And Erwin was a music engraver who had a chance uh, to work with Irving Berlin. And here's him talking about that experience. All right, the story about Irving Berlin. Uh... I got a call from Irving Berlin, come up to his office and discuss a project he has to be, he wanted to do, of putting all his music that he's ever written in the form of uh, these little octavo size football arrangements that he was on a football field in halftime and all that stuff. And also, army bands would play his stuff also if it was arranged in march tempo. So I said, boy, this could be a nice project for me. I'm going to run over. Went over and he spoke about the arrangements and I told him, uh, Irving, this will take a heck of a long time. He says, I don't care. I want it tomorrow. I'm elaborating a little bit now. I want it tomorrow. The whole music business was like this. They call you up 5.30 in the afternoon to come over. They say, I want the job 9.30 in the morning. You know? That was it. No matter how big it was or small it was. They wanted it the next morning at 9.30 on their desk. So I took a look at a pile of music and says, first of all, I have to make two trips to bring this back to my office. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So he understood. <laughs> and I told him, it'll take at least three months to do this sort of work. So he says, okay, look, do it. Forget everybody else. Make believe they don't exist. If they call you for anything, tell them you're busy. You're locked in. Don't tell them who you're working for. Just tell them you're locked in. I said, all right, Mr. Berlin. Thank you. This is a nice job. He says, remember, I need it. I need it. So we went back and I put on some extra guys to help so we can get the thing done on time. It took me every bit of close to three months and it was just before a Jewish holiday of Shavuot, which happens in June. And it's a, a weekend that it falls out on that, that year. And it was like Friday afternoon when I finished the job and I brought it over to him and put it on his desk and late gave the girl the bill. She says, one minute, I'll call Irving out, called him out. He came out, he took a look at the job. He says, okay, okay. He took the bill, he says, well, I'll be right out. Took the bill, went in his office, came out with a check, gave me the check. I told him, Mr. Berlin, this is wrong. You made, you made a mistake. She says, good job, Sir Irwin. 
good yontif, go home, have a beautiful weekend. So I said to him, okay, Mr. Berlin, that's it, that's it. You want it like that. And I got home, I showed my wife the check, both flipped. Why a man should pay me three times more than what I, what, than what I gave him a bill for, I don't know. I don't know if you want to edit this out or not, or not you know, but uh, because a lot of people might not understand what I'm going to say now. In, in the Jewish religion, there's such a thing as a person who converts will always remain with the spark of his previous religion. In other words, he converted from Judaism to Catholicism simply because he was in love with this woman, Ellen McKay. And uh, I feel somehow that the spark of what they called Yiddishkeit remained within this man. To him to pull something like that on me was what they called the Pintle Yid came out. The Pintle, the little dot of Yiddishkeit came out in him and uh, in this transaction, this job. And that was my biggest experience with him. And after I finished that job, and we did the proof the following week, there were hardly any mistakes whatsoever. He couldn't believe it. 50, over 1,500 pages of music, maybe five, five wrong notes. In the, and most of it was the, the guy who wrote the manuscript, his fault, because he spread the note over two, two lines or something, and one of my guys didn't pick up on it, you know? Maybe it wasn't musicianship didn't have enough musicianship to be able to pick out a proper progression that fell with the, within the chord progression. And it was a marvelous job, and he couldn't stop thanking me. And after that, I, I did all his work until the day I retired. Wow. He remained on in business until after I retired. Is that right? Yeah. He was about 90. Not, he was 103 when he left, or 101 yeah. when he, when he uh, Finally, he went. Good man, good man. He'd always be standing there with his legs crossed, you know, tapping his fingers on the desk in a rhythm, <laughs> singing to himself. Good guy. I, th I just think that's a really great story. It kind of puts a heart to the idea, this concept of this like mega musical giant, the fact that Irving Berlin knew what he was asking of Irwin and his ability to engrave all this music with this crazy turnaround time and then to appreciate it by over essentially overpaying him enormously overpaying him for the time and I just think that that you don't always hear the warm and fuzzies and so it's always nice when people recount those super positive interactions with the people they work with. And to me, it reminds me of the fact that Irving just did not forget where he came from. Mm -hmm. you know, he came um, with 11 brothers and sisters from Russia after the uh, czar had a, a pogrom and chased out uh, Jewish people from that area. His dad, being a cantor, was targeted, and Irving remembered that. And so when he came to this country, he had very little. After his dad passed away, he was one of the breadwinners went out and did song and dance in uh, Chinatown in New York, did a song and dance uh, in various places throughout New York City for pennies, and would bring that home to his mom to help support 
his brothers and sisters. So I don't think even as a millionaire later in life, he ever forgot about that. And stories like that remind us that that's probably very true. Well, and I think it just highlights why collecting these stories are important because you can read, you can go on Wikipedia, you can Google Irving Berlin, you can find out all this information about him, the facts and the dates and the names, but chances are you're not going to hear Irwin's story or you're not going to read Irwin's story on the internet anywhere because it's his story it's his personal story and he's not going to write a book about his life and this experience so when Dan goes out and capture these it's immortalizing these things you would never hear otherwise so there was a guy um, whose name was on tons of uh, sheet music along with Irving at that same period of time 30s 1940s up into the 60s named Holly Aids who was an arranger and did a lot of choral work uh, during his career which started because Irving Berlin gave him a break when he was a young kid. So here's a, a quick little clip from our 2007 interview with Holly Aids. So the Berlin gig was your first one in the industry, is that right? The first uh, steady job I had. At that time, there was 1932, and they paid me $75 a week, and I thought I was rich enough to get married. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> At that time, 75, you could get a nice meal at a beautiful tea room somewhere for 75 cents. <laughs> so it was quite a different story. Anyway, after uh, I left a job at Berlin by request, because I didn't need me anymore, the business was changing. And uh, it just happened that the good fairy on my shoulder always has kept, I'd be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> at that time, Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians had just made a movie. And uh, Fred had insisted that his arrangers do the arranging so that they would have a worried quality and so, you know, so they did. And the result was they did such a good job. They were both offered long-term contracts to stay in Hollywood. And just at a time when wearing these rangers. So one of them happened to know me and recommended me. And uh, I went out and had an audition. I took a couple of rangers to play. And uh, so I was with them after that for 30 years. Great, so that was Holly Aids from a 2007 NAM oral history interview. And off we're gonna go to Ted Chapin, who is the current president of Hammerstein Music in New York City, which includes the Irving Berlin catalog. We were able to run into him in 2010. And within that interview segment that we're about to hear comes the, uh, the first of our folks talking about one of Irving Berlin's most endearing tunes, called God Bless America. And to discuss this song, I thought we would call on our intern, Austin, who's here with us in the uh, Music History Project studios to uh, talk a little bit about it. So Austin, what's your impression of that song? Other than God Bless America being, you know, America's second national anthem, basically, um, it really is what you were like. I was gonna. I'm gonna touch on what you said before. Um, it portrays an emotion. Um, and I know that we were just dis discussing earlier and about how 
Berlin basically wrote this song when he was in the foxhole in, in France. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it was just on just a yellow piece of paper, and it was just basically about um, it's like just fighting for what you what you love, and he really loves his country. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that, you know, he was actually there, and sometimes you'll get some songwriters is like, oh, I'm just write about love and my 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 father who passed away. But, you know, I guess it's a little bit more of a more personal for him. And, I, and that would have been World War One, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's very to me, that's very reminiscent of like Francis Scott Key, Star Spangled Banner, like sitting in his yeah. Yeah, jail cell or too. wherever he was when he looked out the window and saw the flag and like that same story, like super hard time pens this iconic american song at that point i mean you can't go to any major sporting event well i don't know about basketball but every baseball game i've ever been at they play it and you people get up and like stand even though it's not required remove their caps even though it's not encouraged and if you're standing next to me, I'm quiet. My husband's belting it out very uh, <laughs> off key and out of tune. <laughs> Shout out. Um, but you, it's emotion. We, I mean, we get emotional when we hear it at events and stuff like that. It's crazy that it's, what, been over 100 years then since it's been written, if mm-hmm. it was World War One. Yes, that's right. Whew. Wow. Well, and the thing is, is that it... It is more than an evergreen, too. It just keeps coming back. I mean, and then it, when it comes back, it has that same charge and that same energy for another generation. Uh, when Leanne Rimes recorded it right after 9-11, for example, that had a new meaning to a whole new generation. And I think that's a thing that very few pop music songs can say they can do. I mean, a few selected Beatle tunes can do that, but there's not a whole lot that can reinvent themselves to a new generation, like you say, a hundred years after right. it was written. And I mean, that's, that's amazing. Right. That's where I go back to because my generation, I would say Austin and Mikey is probably in the same boat as me, is like when I hear those things, like, yeah, I mean, it's a little different for me because of our my family's military affiliation and things like that. So we kind of get a little more in depth with our identifying with that tune. But I flash back to September 11th, 2001, like and hearing it after that. So it'd be interesting to see like the generation coming of age right before 2001. What would they tie that? What event do they tie that song to? Because I would think World War II, it comes up, obviously. Maybe Vietnam, if you weren't completely into the counterculture movement during that Korea Gulf War I don't know it yeah and you look at the folks that have recorded it over the years it's amazing it just it does seem to be generational each generation seems to have an artist that covers that song and does it effectively the first of which was and not to step on Austin's toes about the story, but uh, Kate Smith was the one who recorded it really first. She took it for a radio program in 1939, and that was the first time America really heard that that song, God Bless America. So uh, she was definitely the first one, and that was so identified with her that when she passed away in 1986, that's basically all they talked about, even though this woman had recorded, and I counted, 
myself 603 songs Holy on the God. top 40 during her career. Nobody's ever even come close to this, by the way. But they didn't talk about any of those other 603 songs. They talked about God Bless America because that helped define her. When she was introduced by uh, FDR to the King of England, he said, this is Kate Smith, this is America. I mean, that, that song defines who she was. big reputation to live right? up to. <laughs> I'd be pretty nervous. So th- th- just to talk a little bit about the impact of that song, it's just absolutely amazing to me. And this is one of uh, about a thousand songs that this man, Irving Berlin, wrote and published. So it's rather remarkable that... Um, there's so many more stories to talk about with this guy than than this one song. And yet this one song really helps me explain who that guy was. Because as Austin said, he's expressing his love of his country in that song, his pride in the country, his hope for the country, his uh, sort of cheerleading his soldiers to carry on and fight the good fight for the country that he loved. I mean, all of those emotions were put into these to these words, and I think very effectively. I agree, and just, just shows you how timeless it really is. Yeah, it's really more than a song. And I feel like for people that aren't super involved in the music industry or behind the scenes of the music industry, wouldn't be able to tell you who wrote God Bless America. and. A lot of them might even just think it's, oh, I don't know, it's a song that everybody knows. It's been here forever. Right. Like, it's, it's Yeah, it's one it's of those public songs. public domain. It's just, yeah, it is right. what it is. Exactly. And you don't, and when you realize, like, no, this was just, like, a guy that wrote this song, like, anybody writes any other song. It just happened to have one of the biggest impacts in American history. You know what, Mike, when you were saying that, that is also, to me, the definition of White Christmas, another song. Mm-hmm. You, know, you kind of think of it as being created on the fifth day or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's just been around forever. <laughs> so it, it's it very well said. And that was, of course, another Irving Berlin tune. So he did have a magic, as, as uh, we've been hearing earlier. Yeah, so we're going to hear from Ted Chapin, who Dan mentioned earlier, um, holds currently holds all the copyrights on behalf of the Berlin children uh, and manages all all of that aspect of it for for the Berlin family and he's going to be talking about working with uh, Berlin taking over those copyrights as well as <clears throat> excuse me his work at Rogers and Hammerstein and how those two catalogs are separated and then we're going to hear him round out his clip with talking about God Bless America. So you're going to hear kind of his version of this, his impressions of it, as well as what happens with the money, which I think is fascinating and phenomenal all on its own. Because again, a song that's so iconic with America, we don't probably think how much capital it generates. I bet most people don't even think it money goes to anyone. They probably just assume (laughs) it's free use. Yeah, public domain, like you're saying. And it's not so, but it's great to see that it's it's the money's going to the right to a cause, the right in in Irving Berlin's mind, the right cause. Irving Berlin was the big catch because you know he was living a long time, and everybody everybody in the business was kind of circling around what was going to happen when he died, and um, there were several angles that were working on the Irving Berlin family to say you should really talk to the Rogers and Hammerstein people. Um, one of which was I was on a national endowment panel with Alton Peters, who uh, was married to the youngest Berlin daughter. And the one thing I said to him was, 
when the old man dies, don't sell it. <laughs> because the price will be based on what you brought in in the last five years, and everybody knows that it's an underexploited catalog. And I said, let us manage it for you. It'll be better for everybody, and we'll do the work for you and you. So, and then I know Sam Goldwyn, interesting, Sam Goldwyn Jr., who, who knew the family growing up, they distribute the couple of films that we actually own. So Sam Goldwyn was sort of working on, you should talk, talk to these people. So it was sort of a, uh, an ang coming at it from, very, from several angles. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful um, experience for all of us because since we were doing for the Rodgers and Hammerstein families a certain kind of composer-inspired business management, we were able to apply the same tactics to Irving Berlin so that, that, that they felt taken care of as family, as a family, um, while business was, was going on as well. Hmm. Fascinating. And what a catalog, Berlin. It's a great catalog. And interesting that, I'm not sure I would have known this going into it, but the Rodgers and Hammerstein catalog seen in music publishing terms and the Irving Berlin catalog seen in music publishing terms are actually rather different. I mean, it is interesting, the other day I saw a list of the, of the top earning titles of the combined companies. Number one was My Favorite Things. Number two was White Christmas. You know, it's like, okay. You know, that they're, you know, they're two very different songs. And, you know, I mean, that was last year. I'm sure next year, you know, I'm sure the order could, could, could reverse. But, you know, that's great. The Rodgers and Hammerstein organization is, in essence, the agent for Irving Berlin. Uh -huh. okay. And because Rodgers and Hammerstein controls all, I mean, we control on, the, on behalf of the Rodgers and Hammerstein copyrights, all the uses from the movie of The Sound of Music, you know, to the television production of Cinderella and television remakes of South Pacific and, I mean, I, and, and to the high school productions and to the, you know, vocal score. I mean, the whole thing. With Irving Berlin, we were able to sort of apply the formula across the board. So while we are, uh, you know, licensing White Christmas to hopefully every Christmas album that ever gets made, um, at the same time we are managing uh, Annie Get Your Gun, and what's been the most fun actually is the creation of new shows because, you know, the stage version of White Christmas has proven to be remarkably resilient, and of course because we're all, no, not we're all, but there are enough theater animals. At the, uh, at the organization, um, we could help steer this stage production of White Christmas uh, through, and it needed development, they always do. No musical gets, even if it's an adaptation, or even if it's a revival, gets sort of taken off the shelf, dusted off, plopped in rehearsal, and done in success. It, it, there's finesse needed all the way along. And, you know, the, I'm not sure that any of us would have thought that White Christmas would have been the movie that we would have, 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 have made a, a new stage adaptation, but the movie company was interested, and I said to the Berlins, hey, you can't get the movie company's attention often. But in this instance, they're interested, so let's go along for the ride. And it, it was a circuitous ups and downs and bumps along the way, but we've made a very good stage production called Irving Berlin's White Christmas, and we're, I'm happy to say it's, it's played twice on Broadway, and we're licensing it all across the country. And London, there's a very good, I mean, not in England, hasn't been in London, excuse me, but it's been around the provinces. Um, and it's, it's a great, in a funny way, uh, White Christmas, the stage production of White Christmas has become a holiday time alternative to the Nutcracker, to the Radio City Christmas show. 
you know, as a musical. It's a little different because it is a musical. It behaves like a musical. It's not an extravaganza. It's not, you know, behaves like a musical and people love it. We can book it. If, you know, if we had from October to the end of December, you know, all year long, that would be, a, you know, we'd just be in, in business constantly. Irving Berlin has th three daughters and they are very much in evidence. Uh, one of them lives in Paris and flies in every month for a monthly meeting. One of them lives on the west side. One of them lives on the east side. Um, but they are absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, I, I think if there's one thing I have tried to make my management style, although I did this instinctively, I don't think I've, you know, thought of this from the outside, is number one, we're talking show business. We're not talking rocket science or brain surgery. We're talking about songs. We're talking about musicals. We're talking about something that gives pleasure. And there's no reason why, if you were lucky enough to be the daughter of or the son of a creative person who left you a legacy that needs management, but if you manage it, you also get some money for it. There's no reason why that can't be done with a positive spirit. That's my way of trying to keep everybody cheerful because there are too many stories of families who inherit things from their parents and are then plagued by what that means. Um, th these people aren't plagued. I won't let that happen. And also often, I mean, on the phone yesterday morning to one of the Irving Berlin daughters, I had to say, you know, every project, put it in perspective. No, this project may not be the greatest thing ever. But here's the controls that we've built into how we're putting it together so that if it crash lands, we can, we can, you know, it'll, it'll be this and then it'll stop. So, but don't, you know, she was sort of driving herself crazy trying to sort of convince herself that it was, this was a disaster and, you know, this isn't even there yet, you know. So I was saying, for, you know, take a deep breath, relax, you know, we'll get through this and it'll be fine. He wrote God Bless America for a show in the, in the, in the teens and it was pulled out. Um, I think it was Yip Yip Yap Hank, but whatever it was, it wasn't used. When, when it was released and Kate Smith sang it on Armistice Day and suddenly it became the, in, in essence, sub-anthem of the United States, he set up a company, he set up an organization called the God Bless America Fund. And the God Bless America Fund, which was set up with three named trustees, and what was interesting is that what the family understood was it was by design to be a Jew, a Catholic, and a Protestant. So that when any of these three um, retired, they were to be replaced by somebody of the same faith. The, the God Bless America Fund trustees are charged with distributing all the income from God Bless America and any other patriotic song that he wrote. But there's a, it's quite a it's catalog. God Bless America is clearly the leader. But <coughs> those trustees are, are instructed to, to give the money to the Boy Scouts of America, the Girl Scouts of America, or similar organizations, which prompted a very interesting series of conversations around 9-11. After 9-11, when God Bless America took on a completely different life, and because of the way the businesses are set up in this country, a great deal more income came in for God Bless America. And 
there was a certain feeling among the Berlin family, who of course has nothing to do with the Godless America Fund, um, that shouldn't the Godless America money be somehow distributed with something having a closer connection to the 9-11, people who were affected by 9-11. And I have to say, in their credit, the Boy Scouts the New York chapter of the Boy Scouts and the New York chapter of the Girl Scouts sort of understood the wisdom of applying some of this money to programs that were helping the families who were affected by it and stuff like that. Wow. But it's really, it's really fascinating. And, and, and because Irving Berlin did that, his family doesn't have anything to say. I mean, we, we examined this after 9-11 because I, who am not a lawyer, but I read the contract and I said, it looks to me like the only way Irving Berlin's family could, and that they didn't want to, but they could go in and change that, was if the named trustees were not doing what they had been instructed to do. And they are. So you wouldn't have, there's no case, because they, they're, you know, they're doing it very well. And they're a very good group of people, I have to say, the trustees. Because um, they're, and they're, they're, you know, it's a very interesting responsibility that, that they have. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the sort of religious, Variety that Irving Berlin very much wanted. Um, credit to him. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he did. And the family's happy with what the trustees are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and, I mean, the Boy Scouts of America have become or the National Council of the Boy Scouts has become somewhat controversial in terms of the gay, you know, with, with the gay question. But the New York chapter was very clear about you know where that's national and where the regionals have certain control. So again, they were they were sensitive to, to making certain that that uh, you know it was as as liberally seen as possible. All right, that was Ted Chapin um, talking about God Bless America and um, the royalties that um, came with those. And I thought it was really interesting that um, the proceeds would be going to. Uh, the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts of America. I mean, not only do they have um, decent popcorn and cookies, but now <laughs> they've got some um, really awesome backing um, for funds. And uh, back in Indiana, when it, um, in school, we talked a lot about uh, royalties and like the complications. And like sometimes they'll go to a person who strictly owns it, and maybe to a, f- a family or a foundation. So I think it's really cool that. They really they, they gave it to uh, Ted, or he has control of it, and is basically, um, you know, helping out a really really awesome cause. And, um, yeah, follow, the leaders fo- of the next leaders of America. Yeah, following the wishes of Berlin by making sure that the money still stays going to where it was designated all along. I think you know it's it's again it's another good person doing a good thing on behalf of a good man. You know, and I just. It's nice. It's refreshing to see. And the impact that that money has had is immeasurable. We're never going to really know exactly what that impact has been for the last nearly, what, 70 years or so uh, supporting those two groups. But to give you a slight insight into that, I would urge you to go onto YouTube and look up um, God Bless America, Irving Berlin, on the Ed Sullivan Show uh, for his 80th birthday um, in 1968. They sang God Bless America, starting with the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts on this big stage in New York at the Ed Sullivan Theater. Um, I don't know if it was hundreds of kids, but certainly a lot of kids. 
uh, singing this. And then Irving comes out and sings with them. And Irving did not have a great singing voice. I think he was probably the first to say that. But nobody can say those lyrics and sing those lyrics like the guy who wrote it. And so Mm -hmm. to me, that's really one of the more goosebump uh, videos uh, of Irving's um, career that I know of is just to watch the guy sing his own song. I wish we could sit, play it for you here, but you can go online and, and find it. So with that in mind, let's uh, travel to our next uh, interviewee talking about Irving Berlin as we celebrate his 130th birthday. Um, this is Ed Kramer, who was a lawyer um, for several songwriters and composers as well as music publishers in the New York uh, area. Uh, He's uh, since passed away, but this uh, interview in 2001 shed a lot of light on his relationship with people like Benny Goodman and others that he represented. And although he didn't officially represent Mr. Berlin, he does have one really interesting and fun story to share. And so to that, we'll go uh, to Ed Kramer. I met him several times. I can't say we were friends or I knew him, but I did meet him. I have a letter from him at home, way back, which I keep among my valued possessions. <clears throat> uh, when I was announced in the trade press that I leaving BMI, and I was putting a few things in bags and boxes, I, I didn't take much. <clears throat> the lady that worked with me so, for so many years, Margot Baldwin, and I still see her and talk to her a couple times a week. She said, take the phone. I said, Margo, come on. Nobody's bothering me now. I'm out of here. She said, will you please take the phone? And she was very adamant about it. And she could boss me around, so what the hell. So uh, I went and took up the, picked up the phone, and sure enough, it was Irving Berlin. It was, he was just 98. And he said to me, Grandma, yeah. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. I he says, this is Irving Berlin. Oh, I reckon you could recognize his voice. <clears throat> and he said, uh, I was, it was suggested that I call you because you know more about the ASCAP system than anybody over there. Well, I said, I try to keep up with what the competition does. But he said, oh, I know, I know. I know what you know who you are. And he said, I want you to be honest with me. And I said, uh, I responded uh, in a self-serving way. I said, yeah, I try to be honest with everybody. And he said, now, I'm working on a project. Now, I had heard at the time that he was senile, that he didn't know what the hell was going on. I know he was a recluse, because I knew that the very few people he could talk to, one of them was Harold Arlen. That was it. And sometimes he talked to a writer named Ed Jablonski, who wrote a book on Berlin, but who, if he couldn't find Harold Arlen, he called Jablonski and say, tell Harold to call me. Well, um, I, I was overwhelmed. He wanted my advice. There was nothing in our conversation that would give you any clue that there was any mental impairment, none. It was about a 20 minute conversation. Margot Baldwin is a, I think she listened in on the phone. I know she did. (laughs) But he said, I'm planning for the next five years. It was 98. 
and he said, um, I'd like you to help me try to figure out what you think I was going to be earning from ASCAP during this period. I could hardly believe it. I mean, his income was pretty high, and he owned lots of other things. And he's talking about projecting his income till he's 103. And he was absolutely serious about it, and he, he surprised me about how knowledgeable he was. Well, I've had the, I guess, good fortune to pass of working for a president, for working for advisors to the president, and I've met all kinds of celebrities, but nothing takes place above that call from Irving Berlin, 15, 20 minutes, trying to project his income until he was 103. And when I hear these stories, and I don't tell people that story, but I did write it just for my kids. And about several years ago, when his daughter had a book about her father, we were on a panel together. And I gave it to her and said, in a sealed envelope, and said, uh, when you go home, you can read this. It's not, I don't publish it. This is just private. I give it to my children. Well, she did open it, and she <laughs> said to me, she laughed about it. And she said, you know, my father was very selective in the calls that he made and the calls that he took. And when people had his number and would call him, he wouldn't answer. But he would listen in. And every once in a while you'd hear the voice from God would call <laughs> on the phone. Well, I love that story because, uh, uh, yes, I do, I do. <laughs> so but, did you actually come up with a figure? Uh, we discussed it, and uh, I think I was helpful to him, yes. Wow. In 20 minutes, you were able to figure something out like that. That speaks volumes about your knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> that was then, not now. You know, there's an old saying, I, I heard at uh, my wife's college reunion <clears throat> last spring, which someone said, the older you get, the better you were. <laughs> well, I was better then than I am now. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, yeah. and, and Irving lived until he was 101. Mm -hmm. He didn't attend functions. He did not participate in much of anything. But Do you think that speaks about how he felt about it? Or I, he just... I, I, don't, I really don't know. I, I could speculate, but I, I, I don't like to engage in that kind of stuff. I don't know. Having attended the... 100th birthday at Carnegie Hall, that was an overwhelming experience. Uh, I, I was very honored that the then president of ASCAP, the late Morton Gould, tracked me down. I was in Atlanta, or actually University of Georgia, and he said, I'd like you and Robin to come to the anniversary. He said, I've got seats for you. You'll be sitting with so-and-so. And we went, and just to be present, I was done live. It was really an unforgettable experience. It, it was, at times you get chilled that this guy could write. Of course, he wrote a lot of songs that weren't so good either, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they were good, great. Yeah, it was wonderful, and I've had, uh, you know, Dizzy Gillespie was funny, Benny Goodman I had f crazy experiences with over the years, many others. Some 
aspiring songwriters who were very prominent but didn't want, they were closet songwriters, famous people who would always come to you and say, have I got a song, you know, and uh, they were good, they were good, and I, I've got about 30 or 40 of those written down, and, <laughs> yeah, Dizzy Gillespie, and many others, yeah. That was Ed Kramer telling his story about working with, having Ir- Irving Berlin call him to discuss uh, ASCAP and his potential earnings, and I'm... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> this is great. What I mean, when you're in your late 90s and you want to know what your projective level of uh, <laughs> he was laughing at me. I, was <laughs> like, what I, did, I did too. Like, I did too. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, I'm never laughing at you. No, okay. <laughs> but how funny, you know? He, he wants to know how much money he's going to make, you know, in the next 10 years when he's 95. I think that's pretty good. Oh well, and he lived to be what 101. 101 yeah. yeah. So I mean, so uh, he, he had some time off. left. Yeah, yeah. Talk about, talking about yeah, talk about financial planning. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but for Dan, for those of us who maybe aren't in the industry or don't have a background of it, but have stumbled upon this wonderful podcast, um, can you maybe give a brief explanation of ASCAP? Brief being the well, it's the Performing Arts Royalty Organization, the first one. BMI came uh, several years later. And basically, it was put together by songwriters who were concerned that songs of theirs were being recorded and performed without getting any royalties for them, without getting any payback. So this organization was set up to ensure that you had to be licensed uh, to play music. And when you did, a percentage would go back to the songwriter. Um, Of course, performers are in there as well, but that was sort of a secondary thought. It was first to cover the songwriters. so that's been a very effective, obviously, organization, and it continues to this day. In fact, they are very active in several of the same initiatives that NAM is involved with as far as perpetuating music and music making. It's a great organization. I've been very blessed to interview several people who have been involved with that group over the years. So um, I'm delighted that, that that got started, and largely because Irving had a business sense to him that, wait a minute, I can't just write these songs, put them out there and expect not to be paid. And I mean, again, like that that concept of calling when he was in his 90s to see if what he's going to have to do to make sure he has enough money to last the rest of his life, setting up the, I, I don't know if you'd call it a trust or his will or whatever, to make sure that the royalties from God Bless America continued to went to the Boy and Girl Scouts of America. I think it really sets a stage to show what a forward thinker he is and that includes protecting his children to make sure his children are taken care of and um, as most parents want to do attempt to do and that leads us to the perfect transition of hearing from his daughters who you had the opportunity to meet yeah thanks to Ch- Ted Chapin uh, we were able to organize uh, two of his three daughters uh, getting together in New York they had a board meeting and I swooped in at about the same time in 2011 to interview um, Mary Ellen and Linda. And I'm really so very honored to have had that opportunity because um, not only being a big admirer of Irving, but also being able to have that opportunity to see the sort of the human side, the dad side of it. And I'm very delighted to share that with you. So uh, what segments are we gonna hear from their interview? Do you want to tell us, Mike? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> so we are going to hear them talking about Careless, recognizing the quality, as well as Godless America, and This is the Army. 
followed by their favorite lyrics of their fathers and um, just about all about writing lyrics as well as using humor in writing the lyrics. And lastly, they're going to talk about the transposing piano. And so so um, one of the things I thought might be fun is for us to talk about our favorite Irving Berlin lyrics as far as humor goes. And I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> Mike, let me borrow your computer. <laughs> first and last, right, Dan? <laughs> Mike, or Dan, you're going to tell me what my favorite is, right? Okay. I think your favorite, because you like to dance, is uh, a song called Let Yourself Go that was played for Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. There's this great line in there where it says, Come get together, let the dance floor feel your leather. Step as lightly as a feather, let yourself go. I mean, who writes stuff like that? It's just so great. And um, my personal favorite is, um, you know, Irving was a bit of an insomniac and he had a very hard time sleeping. And so during World War One, when he was called uh, by the bugler to get up, he wasn't too happy about it. So he wrote a song called, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning. And maybe you know this song. Um, well, there's it, it sort of goes on about how he really does not like the bugler, and because here's this guy getting him up all the time, and you know, one day I'm going to murder the bugler, one day they're going to find him dead. Um, but the best line of that song to me is he figures out, oh, wait a minute. Then I'll get the other pup, the guy who wakes the bugler up, and then I'll spend the rest of my life in bed. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, it's not enough to get the bugler because right. somebody's going to wake, you know, that guy's going to wake up another bugler at some point. But if you get the guy who wakes him up, then you have a better chance of sleeping. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anybody else want to share a favorite uh, lyric? I have another one that I... Um, that is it, Mike's favorite. This is my, my favorite. My, <laughs> Mike's favorite. <laughs> if I could speak on your behalf. Of course. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, he, Irving had um, very great success with a song in 1911 called Alexander's Ragtime Band. Um, and many of you know that. It's a, it's a very popular song. Not really necessarily ragtime music, but popular at the time. And um, like many people, uh, when you have a hit record, you try to emulate that same theme, right? We, mm -hmm. If you have the greatest hits of a no-name band, most of the songs sound like they're one hit, right? And so uh, for about five years, Irving kept writing other songs that had Alexander in the title, uh, even though it was no longer his ragtime band. So it was Alexander and his clarinet, Alexander and his Cherokee, Alexander and his parakeet, Alexander and this and that, and this and that until he finally got an idea of writing a different song altogether called uh, We're Having a Heat Wave, a Tropical Heat Wave, which maybe you know as well. So um, the, the guy had a lot of humor in him, I think, and, and he was um, clever. And I think that's that's what I think endeared a lot of people to him. There was a song he wrote called Schnooky Ookums about um, a couple who had just gotten married on their honeymoon and they came back to an apartment building. Uh, similar to the, I have the always the concept of that movie with Jimmy Stewart called Rear Window. Mm, have you ever seen mm -hmm. it where he looks out, out in the uh, in the backyard and can he see into the windows of all these other buildings right next to all these apartments in the building. And so here's this couple coming back from their honeymoon and they're sickening all the rest of the people in the apartment with their schnooky and their, you know, hi, sweetie pie and all of that stuff. And so 
uh, he just like uh, at one point Irving is writing about just shut up, you know, <laughs> we're, we're done with you guys being in love. So he had a great sense of humor, and I appreciate the fact that he shared that with us in so many of his songs. So we're going to hear uh, his daughters talking about that as well. And as uh, Mike also said, uh, his very famous transposing piano, which is on display at the Smithsonian at this very moment. So let's hear from Mary Ellen and Linda, Irving Berlin's daughters. And then you know the story. I don't know whether you want to uh, have these little anecdotes, but these are ones stick in one's mind Please. about the song Careless, which was a big hit on the, and uh, the songwriter or writers brought in the song and my father said this is a great tune but he said the lyrics not very good and so they made a deal Irving Berlin wrote the lyric for Careless but it was never said this was a big secret told later only their names were on the song and because he knew this was going to be uh, a hit song. He just had that instinct. He 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 could recognize quality mm. in himself and in others. I mean, some of the stuff he produced, like God Bless America, you know, is it? It was always around, as if it was on the seventh day or something. You know, I mean, it's one of those things that's bigger than most people can yes. conceive. But of course, uh, God person. Bless America, and he was just as much of a businessman with God Bless America, when all the money went to the Boy and Girl Scouts, uh, that song was, but he was very, very careful. You see, he was, a, as a businessman, he also was the caretaker of his songs. And he really, really cared about them. They were his children. And so, with God Bless America, Yes, it, it, I've forgotten what the amount is that it's made to date uh, for the Boy and Girl Scouts. The same with This is the Army, which he wrote the songs for and uh, performed in and was mastermind of. And, but they're in the files. There's all kinds of business stuff to do with the songs of This is the Army and how they were promoted. And again, all of that money went to Army Emergency Relief. Uh, and he probably, and he took just as much business pleasure in seeing what those songs made, as well as the enormous pride in God Bless America, which is something totally different. Mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, I don't think that's something really to do with our subject, but that was a reflection of how we felt about this country which had allowed him to become who he became. I mean, it was really a thank you, very personal thank you. In doing all that research, I would love to know if you have any favorite lyrics that I, you came across. I, um, well, I, I found that I was very critical of lyrics. I found ones I thought brilliant, like the one about the garbage man. I found ones that I thought were really awful. So, uh, uh, but there were some very clever, there was one uh, uh, to the music of a battle hymn to the Republic um, about the UN, and uh, the, the last, 
Well, I, I, I haven't memorized it well. I used to know it. But the one about the garbage man is brilliant. Um, and these were lyrics that he wrote when he was an old man and he no longer was publishing. And then there were, of course, wonderful uh, unknown songs that I didn't know. And then the real, truly awful early songs that I didn't know. So he was human. He was like everybody else. He was not in, by any means perfect. But he, he learned on his own mm -hmm. to perfect what he did. And, and so that's why I think there's so many rumors, how could he possibly have written these songs? Because they're so different. He doesn't have a definite style, like uh, as a lyric writer. Cole Porter, you can recognize uh, certainly the difference between Oscar Hammerstein and Lawrence Hart, you can, you can recognize that in a sense. And with him, he wrote songs that, that, that had no connection. One, there's a song that I liked very much, which I didn't know before I started to work, was Follow the Crowd. I thought that was, do you know that? Yes, I do, yes. Yeah, I thought that was. One thing I remember about his saying about lyrics, that he had to know the end of the story that the lyric is telling. And sometimes, having gotten the end just right, he'd have to change something earlier on so that it would lead up to that end. Uh, and, and, and the endings of it are, you, if you look at the songs, again, I can't, I don't know that there's one I can quote, but remember, for instance, and you think of the last line, uh, remember this, remember that, but you forgot to remember. Mm -hmm. And there are many others uh, like that. Uh, and there are so many ideas, so many different ideas, fresh, mm -hmm. uh, in the lyrics. It's, yeah, most of the bad ones, I would say, he never published. And, uh, well, they were published. Many of them oh, were, of were, were. Oh, of course. In the early days, he published anything. Well, the early days, yes. Yeah. But later, but later. Uh, I think, no, I think I think not. But but there was one lyric which was not particularly um, liked, but uh, uh, written during the the First World War, and um, and and and. The devil was the devil was talking to his son in Hades. You know that one said, uh, "You don't go up to Earth. They're fighting there." I mean, he was very had very very sensitive insight to what was happening. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very very always very interested in uh, in current events, and most of what he read was nonfiction, and. Um, but he was astute. He picked all of that up and tr transformed it into a lyric. Right. I think of summertime. I mean, uh, supper time. Supper time. Yeah. For, uh, that's that's right. Amazing. And then in, and in the beginning also, and again, this, this was part of what was popular, was the story, uh, the, the, the song called Call Me Up Some Rainy Afternoon. Do you know that? Yeah. Which it tells a complete story. Or a Cohen owes me ninety-seven dollars. <laughs> or Schnooky Yokums, right? Yeah. I mean, those 
Oh, but those, yes. Or <clears throat> my wife's going to the country, hooray, hooray. <laughs> and his partner in that song uh, got into a, my father was not married at the time, but his co-author of that song was, got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> uh, be careful what you write, I guess. But, and some of the songs were, you know, uh, so blue. I mean, you started to write blue lyrics. But some of them uh, were. But that is very suggestive. But people forget that in those days, uh, those were, that they were popular. The way ethnic songs, songs that today would be considered uh, not correct, there was no problem with that. In a way, I think that's a healthy thing. I think the, uh, so he wrote Italian songs, he wrote uh, songs about the South, he wrote songs about the Germans, about every ethnic group, including his own, that were both funny and critical. The role of his humor was very, very important. I wonder yes. if you could talk a little bit about that. And I'll, t I'll lead off by saying my favorite lyric among many was, and then I'll get the other pup, the guy who yes. wakes the bugler yes. up. <laughs> Who can think of stuff like that? Well, how wonderful. The fact that he was able to uh, uh, transfer the humor into so many lyrics is to me is, is amazing. He, had, he was very, very funny mm -hmm. without necessarily being witty because I think there's a subtle difference between being witty and being absolutely funny. Uh, Sadie Salam goes home. You know that. that. I mean, that is the problem with this discussion is that we don't have all these lyrics in our head no. uh, to toss out funny lines to you, but there are a lot. And funny concepts, a whole song. I'm sorry for myself. Uh, great. I would try to end it all, but 13 stories is a great big fall. Well, even just, you know, the everyday things, you know, I like the uh, come, let's get together, let the dance floor feel your leather. I mean, you know, yes. terrific. Yes. Well, you can't get a man with a gun. There is a perfect example of Irving Berlin humor. Mm. A man may be hot, but he's not when he's shot. No. But, the, but, you know, the puns, I, the song, pack up your sins and go to the devil in Haiti. Yeah. And the and and the, the and the pun of, of the, the the best musicians are there, and the pun about the horns, mm -hmm. which is a musical instrument, but also the devil's horns. Uh, and and he wrote a song which was not used in Miss Liberty about prison, about going to Sing Sing, and the same pun about the bars, the prison bars and the bars. Have you ever read that lyric? Yes, I do remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was one uh, that I remember from, uh, from Mr. President about poor Joe, that, which is very funny. Do you know that? Yeah. About poor Joe, and he's going to go, you know, he's, he's, he's going to uh, leave his friend Stalin and go and be buried off in the country. <laughs> so he could see it, you know, as, as he could make fun of the, he could jest. And, you know, many of those lyrics would be frowned upon today. Well, there's one that I frowned on at the time called Homework. Oh. <laughs> I want to do homework. In other words, <clears throat> what I want to do is to stay at home and take care of my man. And, 
give up my profession. You haven't asked about the transposing piano. Do you want? Oh, I would love to hear about. You want to know about the transposing piano? Please. He learned to play the piano in the key of F sharp, which, for some reason, fell easily into his hands, and it was a key that a lot of barroom pianists used. They called it the black note key, though it actually has two white notes and five black notes. But that was what he played, and he could not play in any other key. But you needed to hear a song, not necessarily in F sharp. So this piano, can, this is the keyboard, and then underneath was a lever, and the lever moved the keyboard. So he could still be playing in F sharp, but it would come out for the singer to sing in C or E or F flat, you know, F major. It, so uh, and he called it his Buick. And I did you not remember when he got the first one? Well, they, I, and, and I don't think I realized this until I did research, but uh, it was not, they were not made for him. They were current. Uh, in publishing houses and in Tin Pan Alley, that's what they used. Mm -hmm. And the first one he bought was, he bought second hand, I believe. And then he had several. And, and once he became successful, then he would have them made for him. But the first one, but there was nothing unusual about them. They were used um, for precisely the reason that Mary Ellen gave, that, that uh, many of these uh, performers like to to play on these uh, pianos. Mm. That's very interesting. I remember that uh, television clip in the 50s where he's demonstrating it yes. to, I think, Diana Shore or someone like that. And wherever he went. I mean, there was one in California. There was a traveling one. There was one in his office. There was one at home. There was one in the country house. He had this whole fleet of pianos. Uh, but uh, I, because I have one at home, and both my daughters uh, play the piano, and the problem with the, these pianos that they are short, half an octave. In other words, to en enable the piano to move, the keyboard to move, one had to shorten the keyboard. So that is the only dis disadvantage of actually playing on, on, on this piano. Is there one in the Smithsonian? There's one in the Smith. There's a piano in the Smithsonian, yes, which he gave uh, early on, I think. I mean, in the must have given it maybe in in the 50s, something like that. So again, that was Irving Berlin's daughters, Mary Ellen and Linda, and you heard them wrapping up there about that transposing piano, which is just such a cool concept. And I didn't know that it wasn't a necessarily unique item to Irving, that it was mm, quote unquote mass produced, I guess. But he's just really the most iconic person who utilized it. They didn't sell well. I would have, I wonder why. I would, oh God, it's gotta be so heavy. <laughs> like, um, there and, is a, just a plug, uh, uh, YouTube one more time. Uh, if you do go on and put in Irving Berlin transposing piano, you will see a minute and a half segment from the Dinah Shore show in the early 50s where Irving is actually on sc on screen um, 
demonstrating his piano, which is really neat to see. He plays on the black keys only, and when he has this little lever that he moves back and forth, it transposes the white keys notes to the black keys so that he can continue to play, arrange, and, and write music. So you can actually go on YouTube and see a little demonstration, which I think is worth it. Yeah, and then if you're in the D.C. area, you can go out and check it out at the Smithsonian, which would be will be on my bucket list next time I'm out there. So um, work trip, clearly. Yeah, retreat. Let's go right now. So I want to thank you guys for indulging me and in, uh, talking about one of my favorite guys uh, celebrating his 130th birthday and a special shout out to Austin, the intern, for stopping by. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, guys. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye.